Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey. Hey. So Jim, I have a question for you today, but just really quickly before we get to that. Can I just ask you to explain one other thing really quickly? I can try. I'm just going to read you a quote, and I just want you to help me understand. Quote, as a global leader in health and hygiene products, we must be clear that under no circumstance should our disinfectant products be administered into the human body through injection, ingestion, or any other route. Aristotle? Um, why are companies that make disinfectant having to put out public statements that you shouldn't inject it into the human body? You know, that might seem obvious to you and a lot, probably all of our listeners, but it is not obvious because people do these things when they are especially scared, uh, and don't feel like they have other options and are worried Mm -hmm. about infections. It is extremely dangerous. These are things that kill the virus on surfaces by just kind of breaking it apart, degrade it, dissolve it. So that's what these products do, and they do the same thing inside of you to your tissues. Um, They cause necrosis and death of cells. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but anyway, it's not obvious to a lot of people, including our president, who suggested it at one of the press conferences last night. So all companies making cleaning products are having to issue statements saying, please do not inject this into your body. Right. So to me, uh, it's absurd, It, it, it is, but it's in totally in keeping with his total lack of understanding of both the science and the messaging. It, it's scary Got that it. someone might not be familiar with, you know, basic science at that level. But I think that that's the sort of thing we can correct and isn't, I mean, I hope I'm right that not a lot of people are going to try it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, in any case, my question for you today is based on a couple of things you've said in previous conversations. One is when we were talking about rationing ventilators and how those decisions would be made, you said, well, we already ration care in this country. We just ration it by who has money, basically, or who has health insurance. And that really stuck with me. And I was thinking about that. And then the other thing you said when the government said, hey, testing costs will be covered, you said, well, that's great that testing costs are covered, but if you don't cover treatment, what's the point? Yeah, it's hard to imagine why someone would go get a test if, because if they're negative, they just wouldn't change. And if they're positive, then they're asked to do something that they couldn't afford to do, go into the hospital. I mean, not everyone would be asked to go in, but it doesn't seem like a real addressing of the problem. Right. So you know how you always read these stories about like, oh, my hospital stay cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars. How could a Q-tip be $10? And here's my bill. It's insane and, and I'm bankrupted by this, which is obviously disturbing. But that's made me wonder how much does people being like hospitalized for weeks in the ICU for days. I imagine that has to be really expensive. So my question is, how much does 
getting treated for this cost? And are we seeing people getting those bills and having trouble? So estimates have been published in newspapers and magazines of twenty to $70,000. It could be a lot higher. But the fact that you don't even know and that there's not a clear idea, that you couldn't go to your hospital's website and say, how much would it cost for a mm-hmm. night in the ICU? Uh, you know, even, like a ballpark. I'm, I know things vary. You might have to get more tests than the person next to you. So we can't say exactly. You might need five Q-tips as opposed to one. <laughs> so it's going to vary widely. But the fact that people don't even know and that you don't even have a sense while you're sick, how much is going to cost? You just have to wait for the bill later when it comes. Is that unique to the American healthcare system? I mean, on the scale of the cost, yeah, we spend way, way more. And there's no country that has more opacity. Um, I mean, it'd be impossible to have more opacity. You can't even ask, you know, when they come in and draw your blood every morning, say you're like Bootsy and you're on your last day in the hospital and you're like, do I really, I mean, I'm feeling great. I'm going home today. Do I really need a blood test? And they're like, yeah, you know, we're just going to do it. And then you ask how much it is, and they're like, eh, it's three hundred eighty dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you don't have actually the medical like no one does, almost no one does, to actually say whether or not that was necessary. Mm-hmm. So you go, you do it. Yeah, it can bankrupt you. So I am fascinated by the cost structures and how it could possibly cost this much, and I don't even understand it. And I've, you know, been a part of it. But someone who does, who is a mentor to me and a, a, a radiologist and a health economist, he works at Yale. He's kind of the perfect person to explain this. And he always has a great way of making this super complex stuff somewhat simple. What's his name? I, don't, I have no idea. <laughs> Howard Foreman. <laughs> he, he was one of the first people to start really raising alarms about need to start testing and taking COVID-19 seriously in the U.S. Great. Let's call him. I'm here whenever you want me. I'll, oh, I, hi. I, hi. How yeah. are you? Hey, Howie. I just want to make sure you don't... Uh, okay, don't say anything no, no. bad about him right <laughs> exactly. now. Don't talk about Howie. <laughs> very, very sensitive. Oh. <laughs> Hi, I'm Catherine. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I can already tell why why Jim likes you so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're both just, you know, failed radiologists who've figured out something else to do with our lives. I don't know, something like that. You so. better not be failed. You're practicing. <laughs> I know. Oh, God. it's This is such an intense time. It, like, never pauses. What's the scene in the emergency room at Yale New Haven? right now uh it so the mood is actually pretty good but the floors really need help yeah so Catherine, by floors he means like upstairs where the people go after they've been admitted. We have 25 covid floors and uh 25 yeah and i consult on them now for uh conflict issues and and uh leadership and management issues and it's really touching to hear the stories and what people are dealing with. I'm not talking about aside from the patients, which is obviously the most devastating, but the nurses, the physicians, the, the relationships that the nurses form with patients. And it's very challenging. That is where the pain is and where there's going to be a lot of psychosocial stress to be dealt with for, for a long time. So you're describing a lot of 
sacrifice and risk-taking and heroism on the part of healthcare workers. And we've heard a lot about that and hope to keep hearing more. And something I've been thinking about as well and heard, I guess, not quite as much about is the cost to patients financially. How bad is this hitting people who may be underinsured and coming in and ending up with a lengthy hospital stay? Yeah, so it's not clear to any of us um, precisely how well the first now almost four COVID bills that have passed Congress are going to protect the average individual who may or may not be underinsured or uninsured. Uh, We know that testing is covered in most cases, and even that, by the way, from the hospital point of view, has not been reimbursed yet. So hospitals are still sort of footing that bill at a time when their cash flows are significantly compromised. But I think that individuals are potentially being exposed to their full deductibles, and I don't think hospitals are in their best position to be able to forego collecting those those dollars. And so we're we're back to a situation where our very fragile healthcare system that you know, has never served everybody particularly um, well in an egalitarian way is probably putting people on the lower quarter, not, not even the lowest part of society, but the lowest quarter of society at great risk. I mean, about one in four people in this country is either uninsured or underinsured, and those individuals are, um, are at greatest risk right now. I've seen numbers reported from 20,000 to into the 70s for for hospital stays. And like you mentioned there there's some sometimes some room for hospitals to not collect, you know, or to to lower the charges if people are unable to pay, but as you said they're not in a position many don't feel they're in a position to do that right now because elective procedures and other revenue streams are gone. Do you think that a number like that is influencing people's willingness to come in and get tested and treated when they see that, you know, this might set them back in ways that would bankrupt them? I think that's always present for this population. When somebody is under or uninsured and they have any symptom, whether it's of appendicitis or chest pain or a stroke, and they know they may be on the hook for a hospital bill, I think they always have this concern. And I think we're just seeing it in a much more stark way because as you point out, the average length of stay for a COVID admission is 6.2 days, at least where I am. I think that's the average length of stay right now. And by the way, that's the average length of stay, including people who die. So it's probably longer for people who live. Um, And once you start factoring that in, the numbers you mentioned are perfectly reasonable, not affordable, but reasonable in the sense that I think $20,000 is sort of a lower limit of what probably a a charge would be for a COVID admission and far higher than that for people that are in the ICU for several days, far, far higher. So say I have a three-week stay in the ICU. Could you ballpark how much you think something like that would cost? Yeah, I think it's, uh, as from a charge point of view, it's probably... I'm going to guess a quarter million dollars or more. Um, wow. And even, even a negotiated discount rate at most hospitals with a major insurance company is probably getting charged out at six or $8,000 a day, um, particularly once you include all the associated expenses. So 
you know, that would be one hundred and twenty to one hundred and sixty thousand dollars. I would imagine. Okay. I don't. I don't think that's out of the ballpark at all. I think a lot of people like me hear a number like a quarter million dollars for three weeks and just cannot fathom how that number could materialize. Like, how could it possibly cost that much? Could you give some sort of breakdown or some sort of sense of where those charges are coming from? And I know this isn't unique to coronavirus. Yeah. So look, our healthcare system is a very expensive system and we've created all the incentives to make it that way. And let me just say, I teach healthcare finance at a major university and I don't think I even understood the full scope of this until I had a healthcare catastrophe in 2010, 2011 that put me in the hospital for 38 days over uh, five different admissions, three surgeries, um, including one day in the ICU. So I got to see exactly what the charges were in 2010, 2011, Mm -hmm. and what an insurance company reimburses. So I'm not seeing these numbers, you know, just making them up. I'm saying them because I know what they exactly were 10 years ago. And I have a pretty good idea that they haven't gone down. Where do they come from? We we have created incentives for health institutions to have the highest level of care everywhere. So it's not acceptable for us to have, you know, hospitals that have the bare minimum of essential features. Every hospital has to have everything. And so our hospitals have the latest technology. Hospitals that have a 10-year-old CT scan are looked at as though there must be something wrong with them. Hospitals that don't have robotic surgery are looked at it as though they've made some strategic mistake. Features in our hospital where when we built the newest wing, we made sure there were negative pressure floors in order to prepare for a potential pandemic infectious disease to some people would look insane. Like, why would you spend the extra money to have negative pressure on three floors? Like, what are you worried about? And yet right now we're using those floors for exactly that purpose. But we may be using them now, but the public has been paying for them ever since we built that wing, which was, I don't know, 13 years ago right now. And that's sort of how our system is. We keep investing in the best and most novel and most exciting technology, some of which has very high value and some of which probably doesn't. Um, And we hope that we're improving care and and giving people a better chance at better health. Does it seem to you like so far with COVID-19, that is materializing? If we pay a ton, are we seeing a similar level of improvement in care or outcomes? Yeah, so I doubt we do. So, I mean, obviously, one thing that I emphasize when I teach is that um, I do think we probably have the best healthcare in the world overall, and certainly for rich people. <laughs> but if you go down the line and you look at the disequities that exist, and the fact that, like I said, one in four people is either uninsured or underinsured, um, all of those things show that there's such enormous variation that we underperform by almost any measure because of that facet. So do we have the best technology and does it deliver for those people who can have access to it? I think the answer for the most part is yes. But when you complicate that with the fact that such a large tranche of society does not gain access to the newest technologies, we look much worse. Yeah. The fact that this is an infectious disease outbreak creates some interesting other dynamics where it is suddenly in society's interest for people not to be staying out in society while they're sick. Um, 
Some people might abide the fact that there are a lot of un- uninsured or underinsured people who die prematurely and don't go to the hospital with heart disease or with cancers. And yet here, do you think it changes the public perception of uh, what is morally tolerable once those same people are actually introducing the risk of spreading the disease and infecting other people? Yeah, this is the issue is, uh, and this is something that we've been, you know, writing about and continue to focus on is that the uniqueness of this moment in time is that individual actions are having outsized impacts on others. And we call these negative externalities. And so my bad behaviors are not um, fully weighed on me. They actually have major consequences on everybody around me. And if I go out and uh, asymptomatically spread coronavirus to 10 or 12 people and three of those people die, there are no consequences to me for having done that. Now, obviously, nobody is willfully doing that, at least we hope not. But at a certain point when we've educated people enough, um, everybody has a responsibility. And some of that responsibility is even at the government level and at the health system level to be able to protect from those consequences. So it's not just about testing and identifying people and making testing easy and inexpensive and accessible. But it also means that once we test somebody and identify that they're sick, that we offer them an opportunity to isolate, perhaps on your cruise ship. But (laughs) one, one way or the other, we need to give them a way to isolate that is costless to them. Because if we send them back into a crowded household, to allow them to spread to four or six other people who then go out onto public transportation and spread it beyond, we've defeated our whole testing scheme. So this is all about individual actions to protect the public's health. Yeah. Are there any proposals to actually increase access or coverage of coronavirus treatment costs? Well, certainly there are many people advocating for this. And one of the first steps that would go a long way, in my opinion, is that there are still more than a dozen states in the country that have not expanded Medicaid under the ACA. And some of those states are rather enormous, Texas and Florida and Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina, so on. And just expanding Medicaid in those populations will provide insurance to millions of people. So at the very least, and even if it was done temporarily, even if the governor of Texas decided that this is a public health emergency for which expanding Medicaid is one of the remedies that would have an enormous positive impact. I know this is a complicated question, but why don't (laughs) they just go ahead and do that? I mean, Trump is president now. We could say it was Trump's initiative. Everybody would be happy because people like these programs once they're actually rolled out. And and by the way, the state the hospitals in the states, these states are so fragile right now. Many of them are going to go bankrupt one way or the other now that Medicaid expansion at least preserves them a little bit longer and prevents them from going bankrupt. So there are really important reasons why you would want to do that. 90% of the cost of the expansion would still be borne by the federal government. It just strikes me as a no-brainer, and the politics of it do seem to have passed. So I feel like this is a no-brainer, and we've been advocating for this for quite a number of weeks right now. Yeah. 
These are the same states where you're seeing protests about shutting things down because people are ostensibly concerned about the economy, and yet the same people in charge of those states are declining to take huge sums of money from the federal government that would help cover the costs of caring for sick people and give them a place to be and get cared for rather than being out and spreading the disease and making the whole thing go on longer. You mentioned that a bunch of hospitals are going to go bankrupt. What are the consequences of that going to be? They're going to be huge. And it's going to happen over probably an 18-month period. It won't happen all at once, but I think it's going to be huge. Now, health systems may have to rely on state bailout funds in order to avoid bankruptcy. Other hospitals are going to be forced into mergers with larger health systems. And as we've seen over the last 10 years, these mergers result in higher costs to consumers in many cases. And even if quality goes up, cost seems to go up more. So what we're doing is further enabling a process that makes our healthcare more expensive in this country. Almost certainly certain rural areas and areas that have smaller hospitals will see those close down. So I think you're going to see an impact on our healthcare system that is going to reverberate for a long time after the pandemic fades. So our hospitals charge a ton and medical bills are one of the leading causes of bankruptcy. So we're paying a ton to our hospitals and yet those hospitals are risking going out of business? It varies considerably. There are some hospitals that make hundreds of millions of dollars a year. There are some hospitals that live on a razor thin margin. Um, and then there are hospitals that year after year lose money and they get shored up by either their you know, municipality or state who uh, you know, make sure that they can sustain themselves at least to continue on for another year. Those are the ones that are most fragile now because, as you know, the states are running out of money quickly as well. Has witnessing all of this changed your thinking on how our whole system should be orchestrated? So, I, you know, me personally, I went from being extremely pro-market 25 years ago where I really believed if you just left it to the private sector, most things could be fixed. And 15 years ago, more than that, I came around to realizing that it just doesn't work. There's just too many problems. And so you need you know, more government involvement to help it along. But the problem is, is that we've had more government, but we've also not changed the culture of providers or our consumers, our patients, our citizens. And uh, that's a bigger challenge. We have a culture in the United States that believes that more healthcare is always better. We have a culture that believes that shiny buildings are better than old buildings. And we have a sense of sort of entitlement to every single possible technology without any consideration for value. And that's a culture change. And, you know, when I talk to my colleagues in the United Kingdom and England in particular, who tell me how their system works, and I think it's a fantastic system, they have a hugely different culture. They are able to have conversations with patients and their families to say, look, we've exhausted all reasonable things that we can do, and now it's important to get comfort for grandma or something like that. We're just not at that point in this country. We still believe in doing everything we can. And quite frankly, the COVID-19 pandemic is highlighting that because both physicians, families, and patients are struggling with the decision about 
how far do we go with patients that probably have no chance of coming off a ventilator? What do we do at that point? And we're not in a position to make those decisions yet. Do, do you think those changes in attitude need to come mostly from the three quarters of people who are insured? What's the thing that they need to understand? Yeah, that, that's precisely the challenge. That's what I've been telling people when I talk about the political challenge of moving to a Medicare for all point of view is that we have a two-tiered system right now. We have arguably, if you include Medicare, we probably have about 210 million people with, quote, good insurance. They have either private uh, employer-based insurance uh, or Medicare. And those people have access to pretty much the best hospitals, the best physicians. And by best, I mean their choice of those physicians. And then you have a large swath of America that is either uninsured, underinsured, or has Medicaid. And that group of individuals very often has to go to city hospitals or community health centers for their care. They don't get to choose wherever they want to go to. Ultimately, I think they get very good care, by the way, but they just don't have the choices that a reasonable majority of America does have. And in order to move to a system that's more egalitarian, you have to get this majority to move to a point of view that says, yeah, it's okay if I give up my claim to going to Langone Medical Center in New York, and I'm willing to go to Bellevue Medical Center in New York. Mm -hmm. You and I have talked about this before, but when you ask people who are used to having their choice of going anywhere, when you narrow that choice and tell them they need to go to a specific place that may not be their first choice, people cry rationing. They say, we don't ration care in the United States. But we do, right? We're rationing it all the time just based on who can pay. All the time. Absolutely. All the time. We, uh, we've been doing this forever. This is the challenge. How do you change the culture of people to say, I'm willing to sacrifice something that I may have explicitly built into my decision making? I took a union job because my union job provided me with a level of health care that my friends that are not in a union job, don't have, and I get paid less, but I have this health care. This is sort of a culture issue for us, and people value it tremendously. Um, how do you change that culture? That's, that's a challenge for us. I, I should note here, Howie has been whispering in my ear all of the right answers to everything before I have to do a big important interview. He's like on the phone with me was when we were still going into MSNBC and he's <laughs> I'm calling him like what should I talk about um, and uh, you've you've been so helpful to me and, and thank you so much for uh, all the wisdom and insight and for coming on the show today no problem take care thanks a lot thank you Howie sure bye 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 I I don't understand why things cost so much still yeah they cost so much that they're bankrupting people right and left and also. A lot of hospitals are going out. That of was surprising to me. I guess I hadn't thought about that. Just that we might actually end up at the end of this with <laughs> like, less care available than we do now. It, it's yeah. that inefficient. Yeah. It would make some sense if you could be like, well, this group of people that are clearly profiteering off the system, but even the system is not <laughs> ensuring that the hospitals are, are right, even solvent. Right. Yes, it feels highly absurd, and I hope we end up with something better eventually. But that was helpful. That answered some of my questions, although, like many of our conversations, did not leave me at peace. Um, but, <laughs> but that's all right. 
This show okay. today was produced by Kevin Townsend with help from Anna Waters and Jacqueline Landry. If you've been liking the show and you want to support the journalism at The Atlantic and you're in a position to do that, you can subscribe at theatlantic.com slash support us. But I will say that this podcast and much of our coronavirus coverage is free. So you can access this that without a prescription, uh, without a, a subscription or a prescription. Neither is needed <laughs> to read coronavirus articles on theatlantic.com or to listen to this podcast. If you listened to this podcast, you'll be receiving a bill in the mail for $70,000. Um, well, I hope you have a good weekend. Yeah, you too. Okay. Talk to you Monday. Bye. Bye. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.